You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. Because there's not a lot of good stuff on TV these days. <laughs> I'm Sui Davies Okungboa. I'm Cass Morris. I'm Rowena Miller. I'm Marshall Ryan Maresca, and this is episode 97, Perfect Pairing, Intersectionality and World Building. Welcome back, listeners, to episode 97, and welcome, Sui. It's great to have you on today. Thank you. It's great to be here. We are so excited to have yet another dazzling guest star on the program. Would you mind introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Sui Davies Okungboa, um, I guess best known for uh, the Nameless Republic epic fantasy trilogy. Um, starting with Son of the Storm, which, which was published in 2021 by Orbit. Um, the second novel in the trilogy is forthcoming this November. It's called Warrior of the Wind. Um, but uh, you may also know me as the author of David Mogul Godhunter, which was my debut novel in 2019. Um, it has been christened, I guess, as Godpunk. <laughs> um, <laughs> What a great phrase. Which is, which I is love great. It. <laughs> Loved it. Yeah. Um, but I've also written stories for younger readers, um, including Stranger Things, Lucas on the Line, which was published in 2022, uh, and Minecraft, The Haven Trials, which was published in 2021. Um, and I've also published various short stories. Uh, I am... But, you know, others may know me as um, a professor of creative writing at the University of Ottawa in Ontario, where I live. Uh, so my, my students may know me that way. <laughs> in my experience, um, having taught at a community college, my students only knew me as lady who gives me writing assignments and as nothing else. Yes. <laughs> I did not yep, exist outside true. of that. <laughs> I remember one student googling something um you know trying to find i think it was like afro features and trying to find out like scholars in the field and then coming across my name and be like hmm that sounds familiar <laughs> i'm like you think you think <laughs> do you know this person and you're like how many a little, you, a little. <laughs> just not well not well i don't know i don't know them well no. <laughs> yeah i think my students think of me as the lady that they email at 8 p.m the night the assignment is due <laughs> In Gosh, you got them as early as eight. That's good. Sometimes, sometimes as early as eight. It's, it's not eleven fifty-seven. Of like, by the way, this. <laughs> I get those too, of course. But yes, oh, fun times in academia. So, so you, I feel like you hit the title lottery with some of your with some of your works. I love those. I love them. <laughs> <Thank> <laughs> yeah, I, it's it's interesting because I didn't choose a lot of them. So, as you said, yes, it's really. The work of some title guardian angel yes somewhere. yes they work magic i don't know how they do it i imagine it i don't know i imagine either. it's there yeah. are incantations and burning things involved and then a, t a brilliant title emerges somehow they, sum they summon it <laughs> yes like, like the delphic oracle they, they wait <laughs> <Yeah>. for <laughs> It, it is a great mystery like half of my titles were exactly the one i thought of like in the initial like concept for the book and half of them 
I had no idea what the title was going to be until we worked it out after after the fact and it's 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 too hard I don't like it yeah yeah they're elusive aren't they title yeah (laughs) (laughs) it's really weird I always come up with something and then you know my editor looks at it and is like no absolutely (laughs) Um, which is often the case because I'm not very good at them and then um, eventually at some point we find some sort of middle ground and that's all you know pretty much everything you see here is middle ground yeah <laughs> it was funny the first my first trilogy it was like pulling teeth we had so many conversations and there were brainstorming meetings and th- i mean like word association stuff that we were doing and then fairy bargains the title actually came first and i sent it in under that title and then i realized somewhere around like the copy edit stage like oh shit we never talked about a title like like what and no apparently they're just going to go with that and i was like oh oh that's a pleasant surprise <laughs> I remember <laughs> some some guy telling me, he was mostly a short story writer, that every short story he wrote, his working title was the same title because it would always get changed, by, usually by the editor, by the time it actually got published. And he did this for like 30 years. And then somebody published the story with that original title. And he's like, why'd you do that? It's like, well, it was a great title. No. And he's like, now I don't know how to start a story. <laughs> It's like, no one else thought it was a great title. What's wrong with you? But, like, that was so ingrained in his, like, his methodology at that point. He was like, I, what's my working title going to be now? So we should talk about more than titles. Um, and I'm curious, what, what do you enjoy about world building? Like, what's, what's your favorite part of the weird world building process? Hmm, I, I think... I actually would say it's the beginning because it's. It, I'm, I'm thinking of a myriad of things that sort of all go together. It's when you just start, right? When you have this idea of a world that suddenly just has potential, right? There are these various moving parts. Um, and here's the thing. In, at that beginning, you're making, at least for me, right? I'm putting a lot of things together that don't necessarily... Um, say something specific about a specific person yet, right? Um, I don't know who this protagonist is going to be. Or even if I do, I'm not quite sure yet how they're going to function in a society within this world because I will need to know more about the world. And so that beginning where where I'm trying to like suss out what each um, decision I will make about the world will mean for other decisions I will need to make about the world... um, and other repercussions and stuff, you know, uh, et cetera. And knowing that somehow there's a character there somewhere that's going to have to navigate all of these things, right? Um, so I guess, like, that's the fun part, the part where I don't have to raise as many, que- as many questions about the world um, that are specific to someone. And then I get to the point where I have to raise <laughs> those questions specific to someone who exists in a certain space in that world, and I'm like, oh... That's when you really have to do the, you know, the academic work. The, is it really going to, you know, work that way, though, you know, um, because then you really have to ask questions that are as close to the, what I would think of as the human condition as possible. While when you're thinking about the world, you're just thinking about like systems, movements, you know, you, you move something here, then it has this effect somewhere else. Um, and you're thinking like in this larger picture, you can really go wild with your ideas. But once you like plunk someone in the middle of that, it's over. Uh, <laughs> now you have it, to think seriously. It just got real. You have to like. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It gets real, you know, real quick. 
So yeah, that's it. Very cool. I love that first flick of the domino when you then see like, okay, I've made this one big choice. What else is it going to touch? What else is going to fall over? What else is going to make beautiful patterns when I start this one little thing and just go dink? And sometimes it goes well and it makes the beautiful patterns. And sometimes, at least for me, one of them goes askew and everything just falls into a big mess. And it's like, oh, I need to go back. I need to, I need to set that up a little differently and then we'll try it again. Yeah. That moment of flick. Yeah. Oh, what did I break? <laughs> did I want it to break? should make that noise. Did I want that to break? Oh, maybe I did want that to break. I like that, actually. Sometimes the breaking is the fun part. It really is. Yeah. I like to I like to say that mess is a part of making. So it's like, I, I, and I say this mostly because I have a kid who, you know, is a mess when he's making stuff. <laughs> so it just it, it sort of brings that to um, into perspective for me as well as a creator, right? It's like, well, you're going to break stuff if you're going to make stuff. I guess. So. I love that motto. I'm going to embroider that on something, making a mess while doing it. Probably you got to yeah. break stuff to make stuff. I love it. It belongs on a t-shirt It does, somewhere. it does. Yeah. So in, in your works that you have worked on thus far, or maybe anything you're working on now, what's just like a favorite little piece of world building that you've done? Interesting. Uh, let's see. Can I talk about this? <laughs> <laughs> so I've, in, in a lot of like world building stuff, yeah, um, people often like me to talk about uh, the Nameless Republic because it's like this big epic fantasy sprawling thing. But it doesn't actually contain all. Uh, it, I don't think it contains my like favorite um, world build, building like moments. Um, it will be David Mogul God Hunter, which is my debut novel, and also something I'm working on that hasn't been announced. But I don't know if I can say it yet. <laughs> but I, what I will say is that you can talk around. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What I will say is that it features um, a tower that's in the sort of like middle of the ocean. Just think about it like that. Um, I like to think of it as Snowpiercer, but vertical. Ooh. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's actually, Ooh. <laughs> that's actually how I pitched it. I was like, vertical Snowpiercer, right? And, and in a way, it's kind of it. So like, it really, I really had to ask a lot of questions, like what would I look like? You know, um, what will the submerged per- uh, portions look like? Um, you know, and how they operate, like just engineering wise, you know. Uh, And the more I thought about these things, the more I actually had to borrow a lot of technology and understanding from, you know, um, underwater structures, submarines, spaceships, high rise buildings. Like it's like you're cobbling together these things that seemingly don't belong together. Cruise ships, right? (laughs) But the technologies that, you know, these things employ are sort of like, they exist in all these spaces, but you're building something new by by scavenging, yeah, cobbling together something from everywhere else. It felt really good because I, it, you know, I had to think through them, right? And I say this by the way because my bachelor's is in civil engineering, so I worked a lot in um, like bridge construction and stuff like that. So I knew, for instance, about like underwater foundations. So it, it also allowed me to go back into the space that I have like abandoned for a while. So... <laughs> and, see, and see what's been like percolating there and building. Like, yeah, look exactly. what my creative yeah. brain did with this while I ignored it for a while. I know, <laughs> I know, right? Sometimes people ask me, right? Like, how did, you know, how did this, you know, 
long time ago time in your life how does it sort of come into play and finally i have something i can hold and like read this <laughs> then you'll see but yeah so like that part was has been really interesting for me um right now we're in edits so something maybe even by the time this podcast is out you'll hear something about it who knows but that was that was fun because it, it asked you know it required me to do a lot of different stuff that you know than like what i'm used to and then with David Mogo, I had to ask a lot of questions about the city that I was living in at the time when I wrote it, which is Lagos in Nigeria. And the thing is, a lot of the, you know, speculations, projections, all the things I did, uh, I find people, for instance, will come up to me and say, oh, you wrote a, like a dystopian novel and or like a post-apocalyptic novel. And I'll be like, did I though? Like <laughs> a lot of it seems to me at the time like stuff that would happen in Lagos just under the right circumstances. And so that in itself, even if I was building a world, felt more like I was building um, on top of something that or like I was building a structure, you know, that was adjacent or, or parallel to or, you know, uh, a part of something that already exists. And it felt different, I guess, um, in a way that I was still at the same time asking questions about the, you know, current day city it was fun um, and I, I, it was fun in the way that you know I could almost I could almost see how some parts of the city that I'm like okay this place is going to be abandoned are almost already on their way there right uh, in certain ways or, or like this place is going to be a refuge of people but in a way they already exist in that manner or something so those moments like almost coming to that realization that I'm picking this place and this place already is on that road right made me like feel like i was doing something you know sort of bigger right there's a something bigger than just you know putting together a set piece for an event to, uh, in the story to happen it felt like i was a soothsayer in a sense uh, hopefully not <laughs> <laughs> hopefully not but it did feel like that <laughs> i know i was kind of like man i really invented a thing there didn't i i hope that yeah. doesn't actually hopefully happen doesn't to anyone to but my yeah. made-up characters <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> talking to someone recently about how Stephen King's The Stand currently barely feels like speculative fiction anymore. <laughs> like, after living through a pandemic and seeing how people respond, I'm like, oh, that's that's riding close to the line these days. Yeah, when the when the, the post-apocalyptic dystopian section and the contemporary lit section are just kind of like, ooh, these are easily misshelved. And, <laughs> There's yeah. a, yeah. Yikes. Interesting. So I feel like since we're talking about intersectionality, we should probably get the academic terminology like settled to begin with out of the <laughs> gate. What is intersectionality? I feel like I'm giving a pop quiz. I don't mean it to sound like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I'm thrown back to my gender studies class. I'm, bust, like, I'm busting out like the blue books and I'm handing them out. You got 45 minutes and go. No. <laughs> Nobody told me this was going to be a defense. <laughs> open notes can i <laughs> it's interesting that we talk about like academic definition because the professor who i would say like really put this within the uh, sort of like helped this move from at the esoteric academic circles into popular discourse that should be kimberly crenshaw um uh, i think she was a professor at columbia law school or something even she like tries to do this work this work we're trying to do now which is to say um, how do we talk about it in a way that's not on this one end very like, I'm not going to say like pop culture, but it's like 
there's so there's too much pop and culture in it, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's one of those words that's on Twitter all the time, yeah. and I'm always like, but it's, does anyone yeah, know what exactly. it actually means? Like, how are we how exactly. are we talking it's like about it right you just now? Throw into a word salad. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. Like, it feels like that. So there's this on one hand you have that, and then on the other hand you had this you have this very deep manner of engagement that can be very isolating or or, or exclusive, right? In a way too, you know. I feel like a lot of her work is trying to bring that sort of like bridge that gap uh and the funny thing is i i started to think more and understand intersectionality more try to even get an understanding of it or a definition for it myself using world building so it was like world building sort of took me there and now i i like to think of it as a matrix of power and privilege that that will be on the test listeners (laughs) (laughs) i like to think of it like that Ah, a matrix a of, work. you know, identity, power, privilege, um, you know, the, the very existence, all these, ver- you know, various axes, right, that we exist on when it comes to identity, power, privilege, and then where they're, in, where, you know, the point, there's a, there's like a sort of locus or a nexus point where each person, right, exists mm-hmm. on that point in this very big matrix of various um, spectra or axis or whatever terms you want to use um, and so that way you can already think of the complexity of it it's like standing at a very specific point on a stitch of of cloth right I think you're so right because in so many ways fiction seems like the ideal place for exploring this right because in fiction we can do a deep dive on one person's experience multiple people's experience and and pick some of those threads apart and play with it because when I think of intersectionality my very like un unacademic thought on it assumes that like many things can be true at the same time when it comes to power and privilege and how does one person experience that like it's exactly. it's not always quantifiable. Like there's no equation you can plug in and pop out. Like on the intersectionality scale, you're a seventeen. Like what yeah. does that mean? <laughs> exactly. But we can explore it in fiction, and and I think that that you know, especially in in fantasy and sci-fi, op- gives us opportunity to kind of create a matrix on which we can play and and send characters to. I guess play is probably not usually the right word for our characters. They're, yeah. they're, <laughs> they're, we're doing horrible things to them, but, but we can explore those ideas. Yeah. It's like, it's the, the complexity of it is part of ethos, I guess, right. In a way it's part of what it, the, the, you know, the expression or idea of intersectionality is trying to do, which is sort of, which sort of can feel like an antithesis because the opposite is like, it's sort of people think of it as something reductive, right? It's like, Oh, I, I exist at this place and therefore I am, you know, as you said, uh, a sort of ranking of, you know, uh, who is le- most or least privileged, right? Or, or who most or least has more, more or less power, uh, you know, because they exist in this space or something. But as you said, it is because if multiple things can be true, then it's hard to do that, you know? So, so I think that might even be the difference between the academic definition, right? The academic thought would allow space for this complexity and unknowability and know that it's actually the only way to actually sort of unpack that is to focus on one specific space or specific intersection and then try to unravel all the threads there right versus say the pop culture speak or the twitter speak (laughs) where we just want to like make it something digestible 
you know, a bite-sized thing that we can just say, oh, this person exists in this intersectionality and, and this is what it means, you know, in 20, 280 characters. <laughs> but that's not how it works, I think. Um, and, and I think if you think deeper about it as you write fiction, right, and this is why fiction is a great space to explore this, each time you try to put a character in a space and unpack what that means or put them in, you know, up against someone or something or certain powers or forces or, you know, points of privilege, how they can navigate that, how they respond, how they come out on the other side, that's what tells you how they're navigating the world based on their, you know, point of intersectionality, right? And it will change depending on where, when and various factors. That's what I think intersect. So this is not a definition, (laughs) but that's how I think about it. Yeah, that's my ethos. Like when it comes to intersectionality. Yeah. Sometimes you can't have a definition; you just have a vibe. Yeah. I know, right? It's it's a practice more than a definition. (laughs) And something that is so complex a topic is is always going to be too too hard to condense into 280 characters. Like you said, it's it's not something that is easily digestible and it shouldn't be the the point of examining it is to examine these things that are complex within ourselves within our society it's like if you could make it a nugget then it's it's not worth yeah. doing it sort it's, of defeats the yeah, purpose yeah it's right? like yeah. we we need to engage with this the pluralism of of our world and yeah. like you said all those different axes and where we exist like it's good for us as humans and it's good for our characters because it gives us you know new ways to make their lives difficult yeah, <laughs> yeah. so and so, like too, and yeah. as with us like some things might be easier for our characters because of one point yeah. that they're on in this axis exactly. but harder because of something else and yeah I, I i actually did make this point in the the last panel recent virtual panel i did where i said my book is called david mogul god hunter but i'm pretty sure if he was not a man it wouldn't be called that immediately you change the gender of the main character he can't even be god hunter anymore because as a man knowing that he has power and therefore he can be hired to hunt things and like that means there's like part acceptance there right there are people who say well i can let this dude come into my house and like chase gods or whatnot (laughs) but on the other hand you know if he was a woman and existing in that society and how that society perceives women with certain kinds of power it wouldn't be he it wouldn't be david mogul god hunter he you know she probably would it wouldn't even be a god hunter. She'd probably be in hiding, right? Or there'd be some other kind of reaction. So just the very existence of this story comes out of the privilege that he's a man and can still wield this power in society. Um, and I guess like how intersectionality shows up in you know fiction is if you present this fact on the page, um, unironically, or like if you don't, if that's not something that is you know, even hinted at or, or even pushed back at by someone in the story, then it's like, you, you know, you're not engaging with it in, you know, in good faith, if I should put it that way. You're not engaging with it either at all or in good faith because that is a fact of this very story's existence. Um, so that's something, for instance, that I did think about in um, after the fact, um, but I was, I gladly, luckily, if I should say, <laughs> had uh, some scenes where some folks were like, well, you can only do that because you're you, right? I can't do that. Uh, and, and the, you know, the, the protagonist, David Mogo, is forced to agree that, yes, okay, I, I understand that point, right? Uh, so even if it's not like always laid bare on the page, it should be evident, right, that this is the case, right? Um, but yeah, 
Yeah, I feel like a lot of writers, I mean, because this, this term as a term is, is a relatively recent term, but I think that even before the term existed, a lot of good writers did this, right? That you sort of, you think about the systems that we live within and you think about human people and how they engage with systems and engage with each other and just digging into these questions of, okay, so how how does someone's place in the world affect how they interact with others, how the world interacts with them? You know, I think that a lot of, you know, good writers have been doing this for a long time without knowing what to call it. And I think it's just really cool that we have a tool that we can kind of like examine it through that lens and deepen our own understanding of what what the heck we're actually doing ourselves. Sometimes I need that. What the I, heck am I doing? I think, I think you might have actually just stumbled on, uh, I think you might have actually just stumbled on what we can think of as the academic definition. It's more like a tool for examining I, I think that's what it will be. It's sort of like a framework for examining existences, if that's the term, yeah. if that's, a, you know, mm-hmm. the, pl- the pluralism of existences, as you said. And I think it's it's something that if you don't do that examination, the world ends up feeling flat. And, and you think about sort yeah. of all of those stereotypical fantasies that are reproducing Western European exactly. feudalism or what they or, think yeah, Western European put, feudalism we're, we're, we're is. Square around around <laughs> yeah, and, and they they create a society that is very rigid and regimented and just like if you're at the top, you're at the top, and if you're on the bottom, you're on the bottom, and that's it. And it's like, if, you, it, yeah. if you look at how even feudalistic societies existed, there were multiple axes of power when you integrate the church and yeah. when you integrate family, when you integrate... Yeah. Um, language and, and, and what part of the country you came like there's so many things that make it more complex even within this system that is so stereotypically rigid. rigid and if yeah. you explore it, you find so many more fun things to work with for your characters and for your stories instead of just creating yeah. like just this flat pastiche of ye oldy times. Yeah. <laughs> yes, ye old with the E on the end, time with a Y. Trademark <laughs> copyright. <laughs> No, I think that's absolutely true, because even in spaces that we might think of as being able to be simplified or distilled down for like simplistic storytelling, like in reality, you always have so many different layers that that you're playing with. Um, Like, what are some of the layers that you find the most interesting in terms of of thinking about building complexity this way? Um, Well, I I usually start personally um so based on based on my you know thought patterns about intersectionality as this like as as a character existing as some sort of at some sort of locus of you know on this matrix right it means they 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 sort of what's the word have this if i should use this term net privilege right so there's some sort of net privilege that exists right that's like oh when you put all these you know, positives and negatives together, you sort of get this point where they exist on. And then I, one of the one of the choices I make at the beginning of a story often is ask if when when you're introducing the character to the reader, the space that they exist in at that time, sort of frames how the reader tends to perceive them, um, up until the point that you shift that space or what they're coming up against to show how they also function differently in, you know, another, on, on, on another axis, for instance, right? And the first question I always ask myself is, do I show them at this in a sort of like 
space where this doesn't have the mo as much impact and so they're almost existing at this point of like net privilege right does there's not much change or shift right they don't have much um, interaction with anything else or you should just go right out the gate and you show them somewhere where they're either like in you know they have proper access or power or or, or they have like on their underprivileged or something and some of these, one of the you know first few things when you're introducing the character is telling us who they are, where they come from, how they speak, what they're dressed like. Um, so there's a lot of physical features. Um, there's a lot of like identity markers because when you're introducing something uh, in the story, you've you've not given enough background for us to really understand why people are reacting to this person like that. Blah blah blah. So it's actually the the you know a lot of it is the first thing that you would tell us, uh, you know, as the reader, if, if it's like the physical description you're given first or or you're trying to, within the first few pages, situate this person in society or in that space that they're situated. So I'm always like, that's the part that I always find interesting. Like, what is the first point of entry for the reader to this character in this space or within this situation? And what elements would you then choose to use to deliver that, right? Uh, it means it means sometimes I don't even get to describe the character at all until like <laughs> two, three chapters down because like this other thing is more important in situating the reader into like this is where they sit in this society, right? And and so like phys physical description, um, I love using those, but I feel like they are low hanging fruit. <laughs> You know, they're easy to reach for and say, oh, this person looked like this and therefore they were like ostracized or whatever. And and I try to always go for something else. Like, what else is there? Like, is there something else that is not just very like visual that I can use to demonstrate? So in the book I was talking about that I can't talk about, um, <laughs> uh, it's it's occupation, actually. You know, it, some of it is visual, right? Because, you know, how you, you're dressed for your job and stuff like that. Um, but then there's also like some behavioral stuff. How do they go up against these things? Um, you know, if someone is underprivileged, but is but but sort of like revels in pushing against the envelope, how do they function in that society? That means they're always in trouble, for instance, or they're always seen as the delinquent or something. All of these things, I think, tend to do more of that job of telling us not just where this person sits, like, you know, their place in the world, but also how they're responding to that, how they're saying yes or no, or, you know, or like on, on what, where they exist in terms in relation to that and how they believe or how they think about the world in relation to themselves, stuff like that. So, um, so yeah, in this book, I used their occupation, like what job they do, how they, you know, how they think of their work. Do they love it? Do they hate it? You know, what do they feel like they're doing in the world or like bettering society or not? You know, stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, those are some of the kinds of layers I think about. Um, I haven't thought too much about which are my favorite, but uh, I will say when I was doing this one, right, using occupation or sort of like... Uh, uh, socioeconomic space in society it kind of like it was very fascinating to me it's interesting too how you can play with externals to show deeper things like i think cass appreciates this too i love talking clothes yes but it's not just about describing like a pretty dress someone's wearing it's like okay this is a marker of 
of things like occupation, of culture, of religious identity, of wealth, all kinds of stuff is wrapped up in, you know, what people choose to wear and how society chooses to perceive what people are choosing to wear. And if they're allowed to choose what they wear or if something is imposed upon them. Yeah, um, exactly. I was just I was just reading a story that I'd I'd heard before and it fell in front of my eyes again about um, one of the first cases of gender divergence in the English colonies in, in America, which was a servant who was probably, and we don't really know, but probably what we would now recognize as intersex, but lived sometimes as a man, sometimes as a woman. And eventually there was a whole big court case about it, about whether this person had like committed a crime by interfering with a female maid and, and like whether or not they had functional genitalia of a certain kind mattered to the legal case. But what they eventually came down on was that this person had to wear both male and female clothing at the same time to designate sort of their, who who they were. Like that, that choice was taken away from them. They had to wear both. They, I, I think it was that they were instructed they had to wear pants, but they also had to wear a woman's cap and apron. I am fascinated mm. by how this actually shook out in terms of how this person chose to like put together their outfit every day. Just as as someone familiar with the clothing of the time, it would have been it would have been hard for them. It's like it's just it's <laughs> right. It's a really interesting case about like yeah. Sometimes it's what you choose that shows your station in society, and sometimes yeah. that's imposed upon you and. And you don't get a say. Yeah. And then it's like, okay, well, did this person... They're, they've disappeared from the record after that because it's 16-something. And so it's like, okay, did they do that? Did they move to some place where nobody knew who they were and, and lived as they <laughs> wanted to? Like, start. Yeah, what what did they do at, with that that was imposed upon them? Right. Is is an interesting story hook, I think, and, and a life I wish I knew more about. Yeah. Oh, and, and just the, the sliding scale between having no choice and having something imposed on you and having absolutely free choice. And in between there, all of the pressures and requirements and expectations that dictate like limited choice or partial choice and things like that. That um, Technically I mean, your choice, not, but technically, there but will be consequences. Choice, yeah. <laughs> mm, yeah. And that's one of the, that's, you know, one of the fascinating things of like, sort of approaching your fiction through the lens or like through the framework of intersectionality because it allows you to actually you know discuss or engage with these things on the page and to show that it's not a simple you know either or either it's imposed on you or not you know there can be partial choice there can be you know uh, a zoomed choice there can be you know choice that is presented as choice but it's not you know stuff like that you can you can almost like relay all of this on the page um and and you know give sort of like, I, I think of it as like give the story heft mm-hmm. as opposed to just like a simplistic either or one thing i find find really cool too is that how a person engages like society is there's like macro society and then there are like dozens of micro societies existing within a society so like how a person engages and is engaged with in one does not necessarily tell you how they're going to be received somewhere else. And so I think that's kind of a that fun thing too of moving a character yeah. from, okay, I'm going to introduce you in this space, but then if I pick you up and throw you in this space over here, what changes and what does that yeah. tell us? Yeah, That's actually one of, I, I think that's like a neat trick if you're a world builder <laughs> and like you, you build worlds and tell stories. That's a neat trick. You introduce the character in a very specific space and you sort of set up this expectation in the reader's mind and then you throw them somewhere else. In fact, 
sometimes we tend to do it with like very strong um you know changes you know like there's this space and then there's this other thing that's like very polar like a polar opposite right but sometimes even when you don't do that with polar opposites you do it with within the same you know spaces but you shift situations right let's say from from you know uh, let's say from a, an occupational space to family and immediately you can see how that shifts or from a specific group of say, you know, so a good example, this is something that happens within a lot of immigrant communities, but like those within same racial groups, but from different spaces, right? Diaspora versus continental or, you know, immigrant versus local. And even if they exist, you know, from the outside, a third party looks and says, oh, it's, you know, it's, it's it's a meeting meeting of black canadians for instance but like that that term like there's so many subdivisions there and then one person doesn't necessarily always easily cross over to the other just because they look the same uh and so like yes sometimes even within those small micro divisions when you show those shifts it can give like a lot of uh, there there are layers there like even if you don't unpack them on the page it can give the fiction the feeling that the 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 writer has thought it through mm-hmm. right um and I, and I like to see that i as a reader always like to see that even if it's not on the page i get the feeling that this writer has thought these things through it can also make for absolutely fun points of tension and moving plot in interesting ways too so this is this is exactly. not not just an exercise in us enjoying our world building it is in fact an <laughs> exercise in many points on on writerly occupation Sorry, my head was just starting to spin just because like this is so in tune with like the thing that I'm like currently working on as a draft right now because I because I decided to be way more complex than I needed to be as usual. What? Yes, I know. Huge shocker. Shocking. I created this very rigid, intricate class system that's like, you know, depending on like how much education you have or what family you were born into. And like there's there are elements of mobility because like you can say get more education or if you prove yourself very valuable in art or sport that can like push you up all you know to, to to higher levels but also i have a main character who likes to dress very fancy regardless of the situation even though he's like going like trying to like get into like artistic circles that and so they're like is this guy the money? Is he? You know, is he the one paying for this? I'm like, no, I'm just here to audition. They're like, you, you look weird, man. You shouldn't be dressed that fancy and be here. <laughs> and these are the things I've been frustrated on how to best express these things within the text without it then becoming here is a dissertation on class system within <laughs> within this book because because yeah. nobody wants that. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's a limit there's a limit on audience for that I'm sure limited. <laughs> I think there's like one of the challenges, right? Um, especially, especially as we are on the matter of intersectionality, right? Uh, and we're on the matter of, you know, world building and speculative stuff, uh, stories, which means, of course, we also get to the matter of those who feel like intersectionality doesn't quite have a place in stories like this. And and one of the, you know, points of contention would be, oh, well, no one needs a dissertation <laughs> on the class system and therefore I don't want to hear about it. Um, I just want to have my dragons and that's it in yeah. peace. You know, I don't want wolf dragons. But here's the thing. <laughs> I think that just by virtue of the existence of these characters, it is already baked in. The question is, as you said, what do you put on the page and what do you leave off the page? 
Uh, and that's less of a world building question and more of like right. a craft question, I guess, because the world already exists regardless is how I like to think of it. That world and that class system and those layers all exist. But what have you, author, put on the page and how have you presented it in a way, as I said, either it's on the face of it, either it's implied, either it's gestured toward but not followed as a thread um, or is it? you know, just alluded to and left alone for the reader to think about off the page. I think there is room for doing any of these combinations, you know. It depends on, like, what the story is and all that. But what I do think is the most important thing is that the reader walk away feeling like you have thought yeah. about it. <laughs> if I think the opposite is the worst, right? Because if they walk away feeling that it has not been thought about, <laughs> then it's like that already sours the, the experience, not just, like, the experience, but... If, if, you know, in, in worst cases, if you have a reader who has actually experienced that thing itself, they feel like, you know. Clearly um, the writer didn't think about it and they didn't get it. Or, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. It's what it is. Yeah, exactly. It yeah. can feel that way. You know, it can feel like misrepresented or, you know, uh, marginalized, you know. So, yeah. It, and, and that's often where we start, you know, where we come across all the, you know, Twitter wars and where they start from, like, you know, this person didn't do this thing correctly. It's that's it's from that feeling of, you know, this, you know, wasn't thought through. And in fact, the author has, the, you know, the, this author was so brave to ignore me, <laughs> sort of, um, in a way. And therefore, you know, there's that reaction. So which is understandable, right? Everyone wants to feel seen and heard and heard from and understood. So I think there's also an element for a reader of like, if you, the author, didn't care enough to think about these things in your world why should i care enough to invest my my free time in your world if if you didn't put the thought in why should i put the effort in i mean the the discourse on american dirt flared up again just recently and like there is a great example of you know if if i white boy who grew up in upstate new york can feel wow that is an inauthentic presentation of mexico then you know people who actually live here and like my wife was livid in in, in reading that book because it felt so Gosh, inauthentic oh, I, I, I sort of wish i'd I seen her do, reaction i wanted i want to do book club <laughs> i kind of do too book, just because it would be fantastic <laughs> yeah, i mean it, it really it, it is kind of fascinating because it is written from somebody who wants to try and present something to a basically a white upper middle class woman audience in America and so basically wrote a white American upper class as her protagonist but just plopped her in Mexico and had her react like a white American upper class woman who and a Mexican woman who grew up in is it Acapulco that it starts in? I think it starts in Acapulco or Mexico City just would not react yeah. <laughs> in the way this person reacted yeah. <laughs> and it's just I mean, it's just astounding. But yeah. like that is that right there is like if you're going to be exploring other cultures, I think that is an incredibly important thing to do. But you have to do it with with yeah. care and diligence. See, this is why I say science fiction and fantasy writers are like, because if you ask the science fiction and fantasy writer to do that, they would ask a lot of those questions because they already asked them. Yeah. World I mean, yeah. good writers. <laughs> they, will already, they will ask those questions. Right. They'll be like, OK, so. You know, because we were talking about class, you just described something. Class was like a huge issue in that scenario because this is someone who's like a bit well-to-do, yeah. owns a bookstore, etc. 
you know, and then you're just like, oh no, you know, her world is like turned upside down. But yeah, but she still navigates the world as a classed mm-hmm. person, right? Of upper class. So you know, she has money saved, like that much money to you know go on the run. I mean, like, come on, it's 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 horrible, but it's like still very not, you know, it's examined. Not yeah. <laughs> I should put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it wasn't. Yeah, it's like you would just drive to the border and go through because you have money. <laughs> yeah, there was, and it. So you could almost feel the writer like making all these excuses for why that couldn't be done. But I'm like, no, really. I think they would literally just drive off. Trust me, they would. Well, and it's, it's funny because I think sometimes, occasionally, people who who don't necessarily get all that world building is will kind of put world building down it's like but, but you're spending all that time on that when plot is what matters and character is what matters but it's like but but if you have your world building put together there are things that don't make sense for the plot and a good reader might not even call it out as a world building problem but they're going to say that doesn't make sense for the world that you set up like you set up a world and this person is interacting with it like it's a completely different world or they're a completely different, different world. person like those things have to yeah. fit together in some some semblance of logic that a reader follows, even if they don't acknowledge it as a world-building thing. When I teach my world-building classes, what I tell them is, when you abandon world-building and you start plotting, you are still plotting with the world. It's just this world. That's it. You're just not plotting with that world. Because you say, oh, and then this happened, and then this happened. But like, I'm like, but on what with what world or society or like basis are you making those are are the characters having those responses or is that conflict arising you're you're still drawing it from somewhere and it just isn't that world and and that's what you know like plot itself doesn't even exist in a vacuum is the point i guess i'm trying to make like it is tied to the world and the factors that you know that are that exist in that world so if you're saying oh no i'm just going to deal with plot and I'm not going to look at world. You're still dealing with plot with the world. It's just a world you know, probably yeah. this one. I mean, like, um, t- yeah. s- say your plot point is characters break off an engagement. That can mean wildly different things depending on the culture they come from, the society they're living in, the economic considerations that might mean. Like, there's so many factors that are dependent on your world that mean whether that's a big deal, a small deal, a medium deal, a huge scandal, a little scandal. Like, it-, it affects the story. Yeah, absolutely. And I would even go as far as to say that if if you are not thinking about it because it is just the world that you are living in or one very, very close to the world that you are living in or one that you think that you know so well because it's just authentic history or whatever, you probably aren't thinking about all of the ways in which these different elements come together and affect how people actually exist within the world and how and how they play with it because you're you're going at it from per, your perception which is a singular narrow perception. view on it yeah one thing i wanted to throw in here since since we are fantasy writing nerds here <laughs> what happens when you take all of these planes of of examination of intersectionality and you add magic and you shake like how can magic affect how we examine things and how we write things mm-hmm. from from the perspective of intersectionality. I, I, I think magic is just one more axis. That's how I think about it. Um, it's like one more axis to 
So all of these axes themselves don't even exist like on their own, right? Something like uh, you know socioeconomic status is not just it has ties to say geography where someone is born um, and stuff like that, right? Uh, and so magic is kind of the same. First of all, what kind of magic is it? Is it something that can be attained? Is it something that is inherent? You know, you're born with it. Is it genetic? And what does that mean for that world? How does that world see magic, et cetera? We could go into all the details of that. I mean, that's what we do. To me, it's like one more point on the axis. And so it's always a question of what is this character, at least the person you're assume, um, examining, what is their relationship to magic and what is the society in which society in which they exist relationship to magic, and and therefore how does that character respond to it? That's always the you know sort of like the big question, uh, and this could play out in any myriad of ways, and will then intersect with the other things, right? And I think it's often easy to again go for low hanging fruit and say magic is either one or two things, either accepted or not. But in David Mogo, this was something I played with, right? I said, it was less of like, is magic accepted or not? Because that seems like a yes or no question. It's more like, what is the impact of magic on all these other axes? So politics. Will someone want someone who has, you know... So in the world of David Mogo, for those who don't know... You know, the, the gods of the Yoruba pantheon descend on the city of Lagos. And then there are other creatures that are not gods, but like uh, are also a problem. Um, uh, and so people are like struggling with this idea of living next to, you know, deities and semi-deities um, and, and just general chaos. Right. And then there are people who can live within proximity to them example is David Mogo because he is a demigod with you know a different origin from the major majority of the population but it's also not everyone that so but everyone there are other people who also are fine sort of living within proximity because for various reasons e.g. their prior lives weren't <laughs> that different it was still chaos and so this is it this is just a different kind of <laughs> chaos and they're like well it's not that different and they just stay there they don't move. So a lot of people move from the city. That's what the story plays out, how the story plays out. But some don't. Some stay there. They keep their shops, right? They still open up every day at, you know, 8 a.m. and, like, try to sell stuff to the few people who are there because they're like, well, when it wasn't gods, it was just something else. The police, <laughs> maybe, or, like, politicians. It was To them, it was the same, right? But then there are others. Uh, a good example was the, the people who were, like... Um, expatriates in the city who are like absolutely not and just like back and back and forget this right yeah so um and so you could see all these reactions and 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 then there was spirituality right those so there's a there's a thing in lagos where people would try to sell you stuff in like public buses and they would like have these this very lengthy spiel about how this is like the thing that will cure that illness that you have or like that long-term condition or something. And of course, everyone saw them as scammers. But then when these gods came down, suddenly they had a new way to spin <laughs> their tail. So they could then say, this is from the god that does this. This is literally the essence of that god. If you drink it, you will be, you know, vitality, health. So they, it was the same job. They were in the same public buses doing the same things or they even changed tact you know some of them became like shamans or like spiritual guides and they would say 
you know, if you pay for this amount of money, I could get you the essence of this god, and you could. So my point is, some people, for some people, that was even a, a leg up. You know, <laughs> the, these gods falling, it was a leg up. Maybe not a leg up to become like the ruler of the city, but like a leg up somewhat. You know, from from like selling in public buses to having their own store where they could actually sell vials and pretend they were the essence of gods. You know, etc. Stuff like that, you know, and then there were actual people who had spiritual relationships with these deities prior to their falling, and so those people then had even better relationships and therefore rose in stature, at least among the people who prior believed in these deities. For those who believed in other deities, still held on to those deities, they pretended that these deities didn't exist, they continued to pretend. And so, like, there are all these responses, is what I'm saying, right. And it has it shifts things um, all around. So I think this this is how I think about how magic works. This is how I think about how it affects the society, uh, the politics, the socioeconomy, the the spirituality. And this is easy, of course, to see with the contemporary world. But even in a even in a secondary world that you build from scratch, I think about it the same way. What was it before the magic was seen, or was magic even the formation? Was magic there from formation? If it's there from formation, then it's not even a different. It's just being always there. It's just like, you know, gender to them, I guess. It's just it's just always there. Oh, some people look like this and some people look like that. That's it. Some people have magic or some don't. Or everyone has magic. That's it. No change, right? At least to them. So, I, yeah, I, I think magic is just like one more thing on the axis. Uh, it's, it becomes more of a question of when did it start existing as a bona fide axis for, you know, these people's existence? Versus, you know, when is it, has it always been there or is it just now coming into the fore? Um, and, and so the impact of magic, you know, is more of what I think about what uh, along those lines versus like if it if it makes any change at all, if this makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I, I enjoy writing magical systems that most people in the society don't believe in. That's <laughs> one of the things I like playing with, because it's like at that point, what the reality is and what most people perceive within the society are two very different things and so you aren't gaining societal privilege necessarily by practicing these things in fact you might be losing it but you're gaining something else so that works too so kind of thing too but like how you were saying how does a society engage with magic is it something that they even believe in is it something that they can ignore or is it something that is, yeah. is, you know, oh, so-and-so just melted someone else with her eyeballs. I'm going to have to yeah. accept that that's real. That's that's a Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And sometimes there, there are those who even, like, willfully deny it even when it's there. Yeah. There's also that. That happens today. That will happen if there was magic. There are people <laughs> yes. who are like, absolutely not. The earth, the earth is not round. Yes. The earth, and the earth would is flat, argue, and she yeah. did not actually use her eyeballs to melt that person. <laughs> yes, that's it. And, and you know, and let, deny the evidence of their eyes, ears. Let me tell you about the chemtrails <laughs> and go. Yeah. <laughs> so if, if there's a huge, you know, as you said, if there's a huge chunk of society that chooses to do that, then who knows? You know, magic might not actually be as, you know pumped up as it is to be you might actually be the one who looks weird for believing <laughs> well, and i love it. looking too like you were saying with like shifting attitudes on magic suppose magic is a thing in this world has always been a thing in this world is accepted and then there's a magical disaster and attitudes towards magic start to change how does that affect people who've built their lives on magic who have religious like when the attitude shifts all those axes of power can suddenly also start quaking and trembling and and 
Once again, that's yeah, a great crucible can... to put your characters through. It's like, oh, the can... life I thought I was going to have is no longer the life I'm going to have. What do? What do now? And it's amazing when you look just historically, like, that attitudes can shift on things for very minor reasons. Like, you didn't even have to have a magical disaster. Like, we didn't have an alcohol disaster, and yet we had a prohibition. No. You know, it's like, how 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 do these things come about, and, and how do those shifts in attitude happen, and what do people have to be like perceiving as beneficial to buy yeah. into these shifts and even the shifts don't necessarily need to be so they can be they can be economic um i like to use the example of the engagement ring right what if some sort of you know i don't know magic society ad agency decided that they were gonna make magic cool and then now <laughs> 10 years down the line after like a million campaigns uh, magic is cool, <laughs> right? Uh, or the opposite, right? Sometimes it's not even, you know, all for economic gain. Maybe they're trying to sell vials of magic and, and trying to like move sales or whatever. It sounds, you know, quite, quite corporate e, but like, no, it's but not I love it. Like, especially with the only a particular kind of magic. Yeah. Like, you know, everyone's got magic, but you want this kind. This is the this only one. kind. Yeah. Pyromancy <laughs> is so hot this year. Like, I can't believe you're still practicing divination. That is, so 2018 <laughs> like yeah like things like that because yeah. some influencer blew yeah. up with, yeah. with a certain yeah. kind of magic that's a good one I like I like the idea of a tiktokable <laughs> magic I, I like the idea and yet it's terrifyingly close terrifying. I know it's terrifying. too real <laughs> magic literalizes so many things and I'm, I'm not sure I'm not sure influencers need any more literalization of their power <laughs> That's terrifying. So we are coming up toward the end of our hour together, and we always like to, before we end our time together, ask our guests to give us a little bit of world-building trivia that we can throw into the world that we are building together on air. We haven't revisited the world in a while. We should do that soon. I miss it. We, we, we but we would yes. love to have a little a little parting gift from you before we wrap up. Great. Uh, let's see. Let's let's. I mean, why don't we take uh, <laughs> why don't we take what we have already talked about we have someone or some group or some force who is invested in in pushing some specific magic for economic gain and so uh, i don't know what the what magic st types styles if they exist we have, we in have the a, world but yeah. even if it's a magical we have beast, a variety yeah. of them yeah so just okay so one magical element uh, uh form or or uh, creature um that someone has decided how they can they're making an ad push get get, get cap yeah. yeah get capitalistic gain and have decided <laughs> and have decided to invest in and have decided to invest in some sort of um campaign to make that the thing that everybody wants so they can like get gain from awesome that. i think that's great I think that's yes. gonna, right. that'll fit in right, right in our in. world yes <laughs> it's perfect perfection it really does I, I mean, I'm tempted to just because you mentioned like how diamond rings became a thing because De Beers was just like you should give her a diamond and it should be two months of your salary. Like this is just this arbitrary ad campaign they came up with, oh, and I just yeah. and but the, like the idea of like is your wedding really complete if you don't have a bondomancer binding your hands together? <laughs> like, is it really know, a marriage right? then? Exactly. Bondomancer is what she went for. That's probably not the best word, but you know. <laughs> I don't know. I think it works. Why not? Well, I love it. I, I like it. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you for, for coming on. Thank you. This has been awesome. Great. Great. I love it. 
you. Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. Our next episode goes up on March 15th, where Andrea Stewart, author of the Drowning Empire Trilogy, joins us to talk about mysterious worlds. If you want to know more about your hosts and the fantastical books we write, including Cass's latest, The Bloodstained Shade, my new novelette, Hultachaya, and Rowena's upcoming The Fairy Bargains of Prospect Hill, links to all of that information is on our website at worldbuildingvermasochist.podbeam.com. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is WorldBuildCast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked in the About the Show page of our website if you want to come chat with us and other fans of the podcast. We'd love for you to share the worlds you're making and help us all build until it hurts.